Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Kotayama, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my co-guests. And my guest today is Frank Cisneros, who is a super talented bartender based in New York City. And Frank spent over a year in Japan recently and deeply immersed himself in Japanese cocktail culture, and mainly at uh, the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, Tokyo, and uh, other many other uh, cocktail bars in Japan, I'd assume. So, um, and Japanese cocktail culture is pretty unique and quite different from American cocktail culture. And Frank will tell us all about the difference today. So, um, but quickly before we start, uh, Japan Eats is available on Heritage Radio Network. Our website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and now on Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. And you can email us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org or kikuatema.com. And now let's start our conversation with Frank Cisneros. Hi, hi Frank. Welcome to Japan Eats. Hi, Kiko. Thank you for having me on. So I'm very excited to have you because uh, I had a Kenta Goto before and also uh, Shingo Gokan, mm. who are really two pillars of cocktails in New York City as Japanese people. But you are the only person who's spoken about you know, all those objective uh, view to Japanese cocktail culture. So I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, uh, where are you from and uh, how did you get into uh, the world of cocktails? Um, I'm originally from Madrid, Spain. Which wow. <laughs> most people don't know that because I don't have a, an accent, but uh, I moved to the United States when I was like six. So mm. um, so you're Spanish? I'm Spanish. Oh. I'm a Spanish citizen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I got into cocktails uh, kind of as, a, uh, as an amateur in the early 2000s. It was right before I was 21, actually, so technically it was illegal. <laughs> um, don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, don't tell anyone. <laughs> I used to go thrift shopping a lot. I lived in uh, southwestern Washington State at the time, um, and I found a copy of William Boothby's uh, World Drinks. I had no idea what it was. It was mm. about a 100-year-old book at that mm. time. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that because it's like uh, I looked up, it's published in 1934 yeah, and it's yeah, like yeah. crazy rare book now it's crazy rare i wish i still had that copy but i <laughs> i don't um I, I i bought it completely on a whim and um for my 21st birthday my girlfriend at the time surprised me by building me a bar in my basement of the of the house that i lived in ah, so, so because she likes drinking cocktails she likes drinking cocktails <laughs> so i spent you know, about a year just like making all these weird little drinks from from the book, like, you know, um, things like even like cocktails that were famous in, in J- more famous in Japan than, mm-hmm. than the United States, like a white lady, for instance. I remember the first time I was actually legally 21 and I went to a bar in Portland, Oregon, which was the closest city to where I lived. Um, and I asked for someone to make me a Tom Collins. Mm. I was very confused that it was just like gin and like sour mix out of a gun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I asked the bartender, like, you don't use fresh lemon juice and like cane sugar? And this is like 2000, like in Portland, <laughs> Oregon, 2001, something like that. And they're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> wow. Like, no, nobody does. I don't even know what that is. Flash forward many years later, I moved to New York it's City. It's like a back to the future. Like yeah, <laughs> it's back to the future. Right. So many years later, I moved to New York City. Um, 
And I, I started working in wine first as a sommelier. Mm. Oh, you, you, where did you come to New York, in, by the way? In 2006. Okay, and then why, what brought you to New York? I was actually a DJ at the time. <laughs> wow, so <laughs> yeah. many secrets today yeah. revealed. <laughs> so that was, my goal was to pursue that career, but I started working in restaurants. And I got very interested in wine because wine is very similar to music mm. in, in many ways. It's, uh, it's esoteric. It's hard to find out that much information about it. Like each rare wine is like a rare record. Mm. Finding the right record for the right time is like finding the right wine for the right food. So I got very interested in that. And I got my sommelier degree in 2007. Mm. Um, But at that, at that very same time, 2007 was this, like, fantastic year for cocktails in New York City. You had, like, Death and Company and PDT opened in late 2006, early, mm. early 2007. And I worked on First Avenue between 6th and 7th Street, which is, like, right where Death and Co. and PDT were. So I would go there after work, mm. after my, like, sommelier job, and I'd be like, wow, these guys are having a lot more fun than I am. More importantly, this reminds me of that William Boothby book that I used to have ah. like six or seven years ago. Right. Well, that was really the, I don't know, that was this big surge of cocktail culture. Absolutely. Admiration. Yeah. So for some reason, do you know why? I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't. I think of it as like uh, there's this famous music documentary called The Year That Punk Broke about 1991 about uh, Nirvana and Mudhoney and all these different bands in the mm. Pacific Northwest. I think 2007 is the year cocktails broke. It just broke into the scene. Mm. So many things open simultaneously. Right. And also maybe the internet, like, you know, they, they grow up and, you know, the older Sanders, those yeah. people started to be more visible and it, their students became more capable and Absolutely. different places. You know, and like Kenta is one of, one of Audrey's, like, you know, and I think David Wandridge did a lot for, for us at that time too because I think his first book came out mm. right around that time. Right. It was just a, a perfect storm. Mm. Right. So you were in the right time, in the right place. Right time, right place. I just got very lucky. Right. <laughs> well, maybe that's the, the reason your destiny created, your girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, whatever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So that's the destiny I would call. Right. So, um, so where did you work before your trip to Japan? So um, I started my career in New York City as a sommelier at Counter, which was an all-organic and biodynamic uh, wine bar at the time. And we were also doing a pretty cool um, uh, organic cocktail program, uh, which was you know, pretty rare in 2007. Um, mm. I worked with Tanya Guffey at that time uh, and Nick Jarrett. Uh, Nick Jarrett now is at um, uh, Cure in New Orleans. And Tanya Guffey has had an incredible career. Uh, she ran DRAM for many years, and she's now a brand ambassador for Highland Park. Um, so that was sort of like my start. Then um, I really wanted to learn how to do cocktails properly. So um, by happenstance, I, I worked at a dive bar called Bushwick Country Club. Mm. Um, but I worked with a gentleman named Tom Chadwick. And him and I used to do a cocktail hour at this dive bar, like starting back in around 2007. Mm. Um, so we do cocktails there. And he later went on to open Dram. Um, in 2008, I opened up uh, uh, Prime Meats with uh, mm. Damon Boltine. So Damon, you know, Damon is a very prominent figure here at Heritage Radio Network. Right, yes. he's the uh, one of the hosts of yeah, Speakeasy. Speakeasy. Yeah, Speakeasy, right. uh, um, So I worked with him and... You know what's one secret? I, I've known... Um, Damon for like over 10 years ago you met and he was a little young bartender yeah. at the Kyoto Fu <laughs> yeah. in the meat park and the, uh, the health, health kitchen yeah and I was like I couldn't recognize him since I like I met him two years ago again I was like what oh, <laughs> he was a big big, big beard super tall long right, hair right <laughs> and a big cocktail figure too so yeah I mean I, I owe uh, a tremendous amount of my career to both Damon Bolte and Tom Chadwick I, I, I wouldn't be where I am now if it weren't for them Um, in 2011, I started working with, uh, with Robbie DeRossi, and we opened up uh, Bourgeois Pig Brooklyn. I redid the program at Bourgeois Pig East Village, um, did Gin Palace, which is a really big thing in terms of like the whole uh, cocktails on tap thing. Mm. Uh, Mayor Sabaro like, taught me a lot about that kind of stuff as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I was doing uh, prior to moving to Japan. Mm. Okay. And, uh, you know, just the... Uh Just to bridge your classic cocktail book time to the modern New York time, how did it evolve in terms of your style of cocktails? Did you try to stay classic? Mm. 
Very and, classic, yeah. I, and no soda guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no uh, beverage guns or anything like that. But no, I, I, I definitely stayed very classic. And I think that that's not only like that initial entrance from randomly finding that book, um, but it's also the tutelage of people like Tom Chadwick and Damon Bolte, who are uh, and and other like um, good friends of mine, like Thomas Waugh, Brad Farron. I think all of us are very firmly rooted in the classics. Um, mm. I had the great pleasure of working with Cabell Tomlinson. Um, Brian Miller would offer me a little bit of advice. And these are guys who are like, and I kind of agree with this, every great cocktail has really already been made. Like, mm. the that's also part of what speaks to me so much about Japanese bartending. It's so rooted in classics, and it's not it's not so much about the drink it's about everything else it's mm. about the holistic sort of experience that you can offer a guest it's very unique and very hospitality focused right let's talk about it so <laughs> um so the first of all so where do you when and where did you work in japan um so i uh in in uh 2014 um my really good friend marshall altier another great guy he's been you know he's been around for a while he was i think he was the very first um head bartender of death and company back in 2006 or seven mm. uh he's been working with the mandarin oriental uh group in asia pacific as a sort of like overarching consultant um mandarin oriental tokyo being like a very uh culinary sort of adventurous mm. place you know they, they hosted noma um, their famous pop-up there. Mm. They've got some incredible restaurants in the facility. It's only 178 rooms or something like that, but they have like 10 restaurants or something within mm. that space. So they wanted they wanted to reach out to a couple of Western bartenders. They, their ideal program was to have a Los Angeles bartender and a New York bartender come over to Tokyo and sort of share ideas. Mm. Like, this is how we do things in the West. Let's learn things about how we do things in Japan. Let's collaborate and sort of create new things. Mm, um, good idea. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, I wish it, it wasn't my idea. I'm not that cool. <laughs> um, so in uh, that was in early 2014, but the visa process wound up being very, very, very difficult. Mm. So it took until the end. We started that process in maybe February of 2014. A couple of lawyers later and all this paperwork later, I finally got the visa in December Unfortunately, my Los Angeles counterpart couldn't get the visa. It was just so, wow. so difficult to get. Wow. Yeah. So uh, end of 2014, I, I uh, went over to, uh, to Tokyo. I'd never been to Japan in my entire life. Mm. I flew into Haneda Airport and they handed me a Zairyu card and they're like, welcome to Japan. You live here now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, but, but, you know, like you were picked, chosen. In right? some, yeah, so sure. what's the context of that? Oh, gosh. So... It's it's tough because, um, as you know, getting a visa to work in Japan is very, very difficult. Mm. Um, they, Since I have a sommelier degree, they initially tried to have me come over on that. But since I was not going to be working as a sommelier, I was going to mm. be working as a bartender, um, they had to sort of switch up the visa process. My visa is actually specialist in humanities. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> Sounds like uh, Gandhi or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? Like, yeah, I'm not saving the world here. I'm just making cocktails. <laughs> that that could deal. be saving a life, too. Right? <laughs> um, so you, uh, I remember my, my application like weighed several pounds because it was expensive to send it to Japan. Mm. You had to prove like beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are contributing to the culinary scene of Japan. Mm. Um, and so a lot of that was sort of innovating new techniques and, um, and showing that you had a lot of uh, not just bartending experience, but sort of like... Um, management and uh, educational type of, mm, type of experiences. Right. So somebody thought you have that capability, so mm. you were invited yes. by the hotel. Yes, it was, uh, it was actually uh, Mr. Uh, Tomak uh, Kambiskat, who he was a uh, food and beverage director here in New York prior to living in Tokyo as well. Um, it was sort of, he's the food and beverage director for the Mandarin Oriental Tokyo, and mm. he's just an incredible guy. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that he believed in me. Mm. So you, did you serve cocktails here in New York? And he was so impressed. Wow, he's <laughs> yeah. a guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, he, did come to, uh, he did come to my bar a long time ago, about, this is probably in 2008, he visited me a couple of times, and 
I guess I just popped into his mind almost, uh, you know, six or seven years later. Wow, you must want something really right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Right. So, okay. And then what was uh, so your responsibility at uh, Mandarin Yomoto? So it was interesting. My, my, my title was specialist bartender. Um, <laughs> so my responsibility, my mission was to show Japanese bartenders a little bit about Western style technique. And what that means is um, not so much our motions or our technical sorts of things that we do behind the bar, but the West, we're almost to a fault too creative. Like we're mm. always trying to push the envelope, but like we make our own syrups. We try to develop new techniques like cocktails on tap, like all these different things that Western bartenders do. Um, in Japan, like my colleagues were a little bit scared, a little bit trepidatious of like making their own syrups mm. because consistency is so important. <laughs> so instead of like making your own raspberry syrup, they would buy raspberry syrup, mm. even simple syrup, which is just sugar and water. They would buy a uh, Carib brand simple syrup wow. just to make sure that it's perfect and simple and like just exactly the same every single time, mm. which is something I, I greatly respect. But mm. by the way, that's a very Japanese mindset because yeah. like, you know, everything's divided. There's no Japanese restaurant. There's a sushi restaurant, tempura restaurant, and each sushi restaurant has a specified vinegar provider. Right. The majority of them is customized. And those things, you know... Um, Professionals should make something specialized. That's like a Japanese phrase too. Yeah. So maybe you focus very, very minutely on one thing, mm -hmm. and you do that thing perfectly. Mm. Um, so they wanted me to sort of break them from that mold a little bit and be like, you know what? We can make our own orgiat. Like we can make our own almond syrup. We can, mm. and it was it was thrilling. Believe me, like it was really fun. The first like few times showing like my, my, <laughs> my fellow colleagues like you know instead of buying raspberry syrup we can take real raspberries mm. and we can make it into a syrup and they're like you can do that with real fruit like we love fruit <laughs> um so it was fun but at, at times it was it was difficult because as as you know the the hierarchical structure of mm. the work environment in japan is very very strict so my senpai, like, which is like your, you know, like your mentor, your higher mm -hmm. up, she did not um, enjoy my American techniques as much. Ah. So, you know, the very first time I bartended there, um, I got an order for two different cocktails. And we had, uh, mostly in Japan, you use a cobbler shaker, which is a three-piece shaker. Uh, to me, it's a much more beautiful way to create a drink. Uh, just the, the, t the style of shaking that you're forced to do with it is more elegant. It, fo it forces you to focus on only one drink at a time. It's beautiful, but I didn't have any experience with that because mm. in America, we're used to two-piece shakers, which are very quick and efficient, if, but they're, it's inelegant and a little dirty. Um, so we had two sets of those, and I did the American thing, which is like I built two drinks at the same time. I picked up my tins, I clinked them together, I shook them both at the same time, extremely loudly, mm. poured them both at the same time, and you know all the salarymen at the bar were dead silent, staring <laughs> at me. All of my other colleagues were staring at me. My senpai walked over and goes like, "Frank, son, like very interesting technique. Never ever do that ever again. Wow. <laughs> Just one at a time, please." Mm. Wow. That's a very distinctive, kind of like opposite <laughs> presentation. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Right? Because I think uh, it's more show in American bartending scenes to shake. Yes. So, I mean, I, I think that's an aspect of, it's an interesting aspect of a difference between American and Japanese bartending. Like, uh, a lot of times American bartenders are like, look at me. Mm. Like, I'm here. Pay attention to me. Um, Japanese bartenders in a way do that, but it's far more subtle. It's about like their, their technique is elegant and quiet and beautiful. And there's a efficacy of motion. Everything is very efficient. Um, everything is sort of like this beautiful showmanship and like everything has to be perfect in your movements and your hands and your, and how you're dressed and everything like that but they're not drawing attention. Mm. They're sort of just commanding attention by virtue of the fact that everything they do is so beautiful. Right. Mm. Americans are, American bartending is sort of a, 
offshoot of American culture is just like bombastic and big. Right. Know? Yeah. So which is fascinating, but I think it's more like you know nin- people joke about ninja, but the ninja is the most skilled people, and then try to be in the background or even like invisible. Right. And people noticed after they did something. Yeah. That's the coolness in Chinese yeah. <laughs> culture. So and, y- and you see that you see that same sort of like you notice afterwards just how beautiful and amazing it was with like sushi and kaiseki counters as well. Mm. Like the sushi chef and the kaiseki chef behind that counter, they're also doing the same sort of like subtle elegance. Mm. Right. You take um probably you don't even take a notice because it's so perfect and then you realize, wow. <laughs> That's the difference. Yeah. Right. So, like, for instance, you know, like, uh, let's talk about more, in, in, you know, based on that, so a little more details. Like, for instance, if you go to Japanese cocktail bar, mm. which is independent of restaurants, mm. there's no waiting bar in restaurants in Japan, right? Which is, I think it's sad. Mm. Uh, but if you go to serious cocktail bars, which is where you drink cocktails, it's more like hush hush. And, uh, Quieter, mm. darker. Yes. Maybe you can, you can describe better than I do. So, uh, 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 there's several things that like are very distinctive about um, walking into a Japanese cocktail bar. When we say Japanese cocktail bar, a lot of times I think what we're saying is Ginza bars. Mm. And like Ginza, so Ginza is this neighborhood, of course, in Tokyo. It's in uh, eastern part of Tokyo, near Tokyo Station. It's very posh. Um, and expensive. Very expensive. <laughs> Uh, there's, you know, all the, all the top department stores are there. Like a typical day in Ginza is you go to like Mitsukoshi or something like this very like high-end department store and you'll go to a really expensive sushi restaurant and then you'll end at a very expensive uh, mm. cocktail bar. And Ginza kind of focuses, it, well, it functions as a, um, a focal point for the rest of Japanese cocktail bars. Like mm. a, cocktail bars from all over Japan sort of emulate different things that are going in Ginza. It's now, Ginza's kind of becoming old-fashioned. Mm. It's always been a little old-fashioned, I suppose. But, right. like, the, the, like, the true super classic Japanese style is Ginza. Mm. So um, one of the first things that you'll notice is you'll walk in and it's dead silent. And I mean, like, sometimes zero music playing. Mm. Like, there's, which is, I think, very odd to the Western sort of uh, bar culture. Um, uh, another big thing is you you don't go to a bar to talk to the bartender necessarily mm. not not to have like lengthy conversations like the conversations are polite but pretty pretty quiet and pretty quick it's mm. about it's about a moment of silence as a guest a moment of silence a break from the city where you go and you contemplate your cocktail quietly mm. by yourself maybe with your guest right and that's it yeah but you never talk, talk about you're not talking to other guests right you know yeah because i think that's kind of worshiping techniques of the cocktails and the techniques you know the behind and all those discipline of the bartenders yeah there it's it's really like a, it's very much a temple to a cocktail and I, I i've often described the act of going to a japanese cocktail bar as a guest as being a participatory sport hmm. so like y- y- you as the spectator you're a part of the show too because the guest is, like when I would be making a drink in Japan, the guest is watching how many times I stir, how quietly I'm stirring, like how my motions are. If, if when you're placing all of the different, um, the different tools that you're using on the bar, they all have to be equidistant. Everything, every aspect of what you're doing is beautiful and they're watching all of it. Mm. In America, you go in, you order your drink, and then you immediately just turn to whoever you're hanging out with and you ignore everything else that's going on. <laughs> that's true. In, in, in Japan, the guest is very quietly observing everything. Mm, interesting. And it, that reminds me of, uh, you know, Japanese kisaten, the coffee shops. Yeah. It's the same respect to the product and the owner of the place. Or, of course, uh, you know, the, um, whoever's working to serve you. So I think it's like uh, the service. Omotenashi? Omotenashi, mm. <laughs> yeah. How do you describe mot- omotenashi? Oh, gosh. So omotenashi, it, I, uh, I've, I've, I've written a guide now um, that I use as a, as a training tool for um, bars that I work with for, to, to show um, fellow bartenders what Japanese cocktail making is all about. Mm, wow. And we tend in the West to be kind of obsessed with technique and like um 
just do the Japanese bartenders use their jigger twice with two different syrups? I'm like, doesn't matter. Don't don't worry about that. <laughs> the number one most important thing to, to think about in Japanese bartending is omotenashi. Mm. So omotenashi is hospitality. Um, however, the Japanese concept of hospitality is just above and beyond everything. And I think it's two different things. First of all, you have... From birth, like mm. every Japanese person is, is taught about like the importance of omotenashi and just being a hospitable person. Mm. Um, like you hear stories about like how at like Japanese kindergartens and elementary schools, all of the all of the students like clean their own. Yeah, like, after school, the yeah, you clean, classrooms. You clean your own classroom, right? Yeah. So it's a sort of like um, massive emphasis on uh, harmony in in your society. So hospitality is an offshoot of that. So already every single person in Japan is kind of a lot more hospitable than, than we are in the West. And when you elevate that to being like a professional hospitalitarian, if you're like at an izakaya, which is just like, you know, your, your sort of typical everyday like gastropub, their level of service is like our Michelin level here. Mm. And so then when you have a Michelin level service in, in or a five-star hotel service like the Mandarin Oriental, you're expected to go way, way above and beyond. Mm. So, like, two examples of that would be um, I went to a Star Bar once in Ginza, and I was I was by myself, and I was hungry, and it was raining. Mm. Isn't that uh, Hoshi? Yeah, San, yeah, yeah. Hoshi. yeah, He's, yeah, yeah. He's been there for a long, long time, yeah. Right. Um, I was hungry, it was raining, um, and I said, I want to get some yakitori. It's kind of close to Shinbashi, but not that close. But there's yakitori, pretty good yakitori in Ginza as well. Mm. Um, so he's like, oh, yeah, I'll, t- I'll take you there. So he got an umbrella, <laughs> walked me out the door, like walked me downstairs, which is like several, oh, no, upstairs, a couple flights of stairs, and then walked me like a couple of blocks down to the yakitori stand and bought me like my first stick of yakitori. Wow. Like that is omotenashi. <laughs> You know, that's hospitality. Right. And, and then I, I learned from that, like, uh, as much as I possibly could. Uh, so an example of me doing that in Japan was um, I had a guest who, who he'd been staying at the hotel for, <clears throat> for a few days, uh, for, for a while, like about a week. And uh, I knew it was his birthday. He was missing home and all this stuff. And uh, he was going to go back home the next day. And he was really into these like uh, uh, rice snacks that we used to have. Uh, what's the term for uh, for bar snacks? Otsumami. 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 Yeah. So we had this otsumami, um, and he loved them. And so I had a 15-minute break, like that's like a you know union-sanctioned 15-minute break. Yeah. Ran downstairs, 37 flights of stairs. Um, I took the elevator downstairs, 37 flights of stairs. Uh, hopped on my mama chari, like my little like my yeah. little my little bicycle, bicycle. like <laughs> like grandma style bicycle. Yeah. Rode five minutes to the shop where I know that we bought them, and I got like a giant like pillow sack worth of it, <laughs> and then brought it back home and I sent it up to his room, mm. you know, so that he had like snacks to have on the plane, like because he he loved that snack. Like that's the sort of thing that's like in America, it's like wow, but in Japan, it's like normal. Mm. <laughs> That's like basic, right. basic omotenashi. Mm. Wow. So you really <laughs> take all those things in yourself, sounds like. Try to. You know, like w- when, when I got back home, I, 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 uh, when I got back to the United States, uh, my first job was working at Karasu. Mm. So Thomas Waugh started the program there. I, I helped, a, like, you know, a little bit. I helped as much as I could. Mm. But one thing that I tried to do all the time and that we all tried to do there is jump under the bar and walk the guest out. You know, mm. hold the door open and just say, say bye individually to each guest. Mm. If you can. Right. <laughs> it's a really nice touch. Well, the bar in America is almost uh, uh, synonymous to like being busy yeah like loud and busy and exciting energetic yeah so that's kind of the opposite cultural element right and uh yeah so this i also heard that you know the bar setup is different Mm. it's very different so in the united states uh in new york specifically our style and I'm not sure if it was always this way, but our style is 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 uh, it, it, 
is it's busy. The bar itself is very busy. Mm. We sort of pride ourselves on having uh, like a several dozen syrup bottles and spirit bottles like on the bar counter itself. All of your tools are on the bar counter. You have bitters everywhere. It looks like an apothecary, like a pharmacy. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that style. You know, that's our style. But in in Japan, it's the total opposite. Mm. Everything is just clean, clear, and simple. Um, nothing on the bar. Not even your not not a jigger, not not a shaker. Nothing. Nothing is on the bar. Um, a, a great example of that is. Uh, Gen Yamamoto in mm-hmm. uh, Akasaka. Mm. Gen uh, Yamamoto, he, that's the bar's name too. Yeah, that's right. he's, a, he's the gentleman. He used to work at Brushstroke and mm. then he started his own namesake bar. It's this beautiful eight-seat counter and it's always eight seats in, mm. in Japan or very often. So it's this beautiful eight-seat counter and it's so minimal that even there's no bottles in the back bar either. There's just nothing. Mm. You can't see anything. And I, I think there's there's two reasons for that, or at least two reasons why it works really well for Japanese-style cocktail making. The first reason is anything that's in between you and the guests is going to prevent you from doing great omotenashi. Mm. You know, like if you're having to reach over bottles like very uncomfortably, mm-hmm. like if you can't really see like where the guest is at and like in their drink, like you can't achieve the level of hospitality that you need to be achieving mm. in Japanese cocktail making. The second thing is that because the art of making the cocktail is so participatory that it like that that the guest wants to be watching that mm. that and that you're being so subtle with everything that you do as a bartender you're not drawing attention but you're just commanding attention um, anything that blocks that sort of sight line I think is is mm. viewed poorly right um, so that's been something that's been really important to me uh, as a as a you know ambassador of the of Japanese technique coming mm. back to the United States is trying to teach bars to clear their back bars and clear their front bars. Another actually important aspect of that too is that you're supposed to be so clean and so perfect in your drink making that you're not spilling a drop of anything on mm. the bar counter itself. So you don't need mats and mm. bar mats and drink rails and all these other tools that we use in America to make up for like our spills because of our focus on speed. Right. Like you're just so perfect that everything's just clean. Mm. It proves that you're clean. Right. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like uh, the minimalist like Zen temple approach. Less is more. Yep. <laughs> Your focus is there because this is less. You know, when when uh, when Thomas Hua was, was starting Karasu, him and I sat down and we we talked a lot about what differentiates Japanese cocktail technique and American cocktail technique. And I think that's something that kind of shocked him a little bit at first. He's like, well, we can't have all the tools and all that stuff there. But then after a couple of weeks of working together, I remember he said, like, this is actually very liberating. Mm. Like, it feels very liberating as an American bartender to be like, wow, there's not a bunch of stuff in front of me. I can mm. just interact with my guest. Interesting. Wow. So it's uh, it's not the opposite. Probably it's kind of like a reminding, inspiring each other. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Mm. Okay. Um, there's a lot more to talk about. So I have to just throw in some uh, break here. So <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. so when I can come back, we'll talk more about uh, the details of cocktail cultures, differences, and also more interesting, fun plans of Frank. So <laughs> please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. 
plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs Podcast Live from a Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host,、uh, Kiko Adema. My guest today is Frank Cisneros, who is a New York based bartender and who spent over a year in Japan recently and deeply im- immersed himself uh, uh, in Japanese cocktail culture. So let's continue talking about the difference between American and Japanese cocktail culture. So,、uh, one thing I heard is that the bath tools they're different.、Mm. Yes. So, so It's really interesting now because、um, you, have, you have bar tool suppliers like Cocktail Kingdom and even、uh, barsupplies.com, I think is one of them. So many、uh, Western bar tool suppliers have changed their lineup to be actually Japanese style、um, bar tools, in particular,、um, Japanese bar spoons and Japanese jiggers have become like de rigueur. It's just like everyone kind of standardly uses them. However, everyone kind of uses them wrong.、Mm, um, okay. My, and myself included.、Um, so, back when Cocktail Kingdom first started, for instance, that was、uh, at least when I first started buying from them in 2007, 2008.、Uh, Greg Baum was sort of like, he still is like an ambassador of Japanese bartending and had, and had traveled there more than almost any of us. And he was bringing back all these incredibly beautiful tools. And this is, you know, 2007, 2008, like our bar tools were pretty dismal in the United States at that time. They weren't pretty, they were functional, but they certainly weren't beautiful. And he was bringing back all these beautiful spoons and beautiful Hawthorne strainers, and everything was gold plated and just. Crystal mixing glasses, <laughs> it was just like soul crushingly beautiful. So, you know, every few weeks something new would come out. Greg would let us know, and it was like a race between like Damon Bolte, Thomas Waugh, Brad Farron, and myself. Like, and all of us were at different bars. Sometimes we were all at the same bar. We'd all go there and try to buy these like beautiful Japanese <laughs> bar spoons and all this barware that was coming out, and it was really expensive stuff too.、Um, but, you know, One time, in maybe I think in 2008, I had a, a Japanese gold teardrop spoon, a、uh, Yarai crystal mixing glass, and a barren gold Hawthorne strainer. And、uh, Greg Baum was over at Prime Meats where I was bartending, and you know, I was stirring my drink the best that I possibly can. And I left the spoon in my, hot, in, in my mixing glass and I put my Hawthorne strainer over. The mixing glass, and this is at a time when no one used Hawthorne strainers with mixing glasses,、mm. they used julep strainers. And you know, I poured out my drink, and Greg was like, Hey, like, you're the first person I've ever seen that's done that the actual Japanese style. And、mm. I was like, I had no idea. <laughs> like, there's, there's, I mean, YouTube barely existed. Like, I had, like, there, there was no way for me to know how they actually did in Japan. I'd never been there.、Mm. Um, but then, actually, going to Japan, I wound up learning a lot of things. like... In, in terms of how incorrectly we actually use the tools.、Mm. So, right now,、uh, trident spoons are very popular. So, this is a long, long mixing spoon for stirring a cocktail like a Manhattan or a martini. And on the end, there's a trident. And for the most part, like, I think we, we think the trident is used to like, grab a garnish or it's just a decorative element or it reflects the light beautifully. And it does do all those things really well. But the main reason why.、Uh, Bartenders in Japan use that trident spoon is because when you're mixing a gin and tonic, which is a very popular drink in Japan, you flip the trident over, and the trident is used to skirt past the ice so that you can put the lime further、ah. down into the drink. Wow. So it has a specific purpose, <laughs>、mm. but it's a purpose that none of us ever do here in the West. <laughs>、um, you wow. Know, And again, talking about cobbler shakers, so these are your three piece shakers. They're like you know, what you imagine James Bond shaking a martini with. Um, it creates a very different drink.、Um, 
it's uh, it, it your shaking style and the type of ice that you use with that type of shaker emulsifies the drink and aerates it in a way mm. that what we do in the West, which is we often double strain, meaning that we we shake, we have a Hawthorne strainer, and then we have a little tea strainer to strain further. Mm. That tea strainer no longer becomes necessary because the sort of frothiness of the drink and the, and the shards of ice that float on top of it mm. become a feature of the drink as opposed to something you don't want. Right. So it's very, very different. Mm. The tools, we often think of the tools as just being gorgeous, but they have a very specific function. Right. So more details. Yeah. Mm, in the pursuit of perfection <laughs> there too yeah and the tools are important because the tools will inform your style so mm. it's very important that I, I say this often that Japanese cocktail bartending is a holistic thing it's all encompassing mm. there's many many little details if you're only doing two or three of those details it's not going to make that much of a difference mm. but if you do all 50 of those details then a guest will come in and say Okay, this is different. Right. This is very different. And the obvious one is uh, the ice, right? right. So right. especially hand-carved and it doesn't melt too quickly. Right. And also the ice itself is more clear, like yeah. transparent. Yeah, it's appearance. more pure. So um, it's, it's, it's very interesting because uh, obviously in the past 10 years here in America, our ice has improved quite a bit and we're lucky to have things like Okamoto, Mm. Um, which was really the first. And then 100 Weight um, started their ice company. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he, he came here. And okay, about that. Yeah, <laughs> the ice. I, I just emailed him today. I talked to him a lot. Mm. <laughs> he, his ice is, is, is fantastic. Um, but to be fair, ice, the ice of that quality here in, in New York City and just in the West in general is expensive. Very, mm. very expensive. Um, in Japan, they never really stopped producing really high quality ice like that obviously here many years ago during like the cocktail sort of heyday so like think of like the 1880s through the 19 teens up to prohibition everyone was using fantastic ice because it was mm-hmm. essentially like harvested lake ice is what they were right. using <laughs> you know so it's like perfect beautiful clear wonderful ice then we sort of you know we went through the war period and then the, and then we went into the post-war sort of consumerist period in which every bar and every house had their own like ice machine or their own refrigerator. Mm. In Japan, they never went through prohibition. So cocktails come to Japan in the 1880s. They're using the same sort of like big block ice, and they just kept on going. Mm. To this day, they just the continuity never ended. Right. So even if you're like at a kind of divey bar and golden guy in Shinjuku. Like you'll see the the bartenders, they don't have their own ice machine in the in the in the bar. They never have their own ice machine. Mm. They just run to the kombini and mm. get this ice that's perfectly clear. <laughs> and whereas in the United States, we might be paying thirty or forty dollars for a slab of ice mm. in Japan. That same amount of ice costs like a dollar fifty. It's right. really really inexpensive. <laughs> so there's no reason not to have excellent quality ice all the time. Interesting. Wow. So. And the other thing that comes to my mind, uh, you know, shaking, which relates to ice. Yeah. Right? So, like, things like, you know, what's called the hard shake. Right. Yeah. Like, maybe you can just talk about specific way to yeah. shake. So, you know, the hard, the hard shake has become, like, a, a legend in the West. And I think it's a little bit of a misnomer because um, I think oftentimes us Western bartenders assume that shaking with a cobbler shaking shaking with a cobbler shaker is automatically the hard shake and just shaking in any way that emulates the japanese style is the hard shake and it's really not um the hard shake was developed by one specific bar i believe it was star bar uh no that's uh no. Weda-san of tender yeah bartender Right. Right. Yeah. That's in Ginza. Exactly. It's in Ginza also. They're all in Ginza. Right. I know. (laughs) So, so yeah, it was developed by Ueda-san. And it's very specific because they have a very specific ice that they use. Mm. So Actually, Ueda-san, one one time I went to bartender, I was like nervous, but I spoke to him. Yeah. And I asked him how he he gets his ice. And he said he makes his own. Yeah, he makes it. Yeah. (laughs) So I make my own as well now too. Mm, Wow. Yeah. So that's the thing. So he makes his own ice. So it's very specific and it has like a type of hardness and and like the the water that he uses, I think is very soft water. Mm. Right. So it's very specific to his thing. And then he also has his own specific uh, shakers that he uses. 
um, I can't remember if they're Birdie or which brand he uses, but he developed his style. He developed that hard shake around his type of ice mm. and his type of tools. Wow. So if you don't have that combination, if you're not, if you, basically if you're not Ueda San and you're not at Starbar, you can't do the hard shake. Wow. Because it's not going to improve your drink. It's mm. really, it's, it's form follows function. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, basically what I read, you know, if, assuming I'm not Ueda San, I don't have his bar of my ice, but there's a basic thing that can kind of um, follow yeah. the rules. I heard that the hard shake um, make the hard shards kind of more evenly or yeah. something. It's, it doesn't melt. It di- the custard doesn't get diluted yeah. because of the shape of the ice. No, absolutely. I, 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 try to, I try to teach bartenders that I work with like how to shake based on the type of ice that we currently have available to us and the type of tools that we have so that we can achieve the results that we need. Mm. Um, because we do want that. We do want that little like ice shard sort of thing, which is so funny because 10 years ago in New York, we hated that. We didn't want that at all. Hmm. But now things are changing. Hmm. So it's a mouthfeel and it doesn't yeah. get melt too much too quickly. Mouthfeel is so important to Japanese cocktails. Hmm. Like a, a good example of that is that stirred cocktails like uh, Manhattan, Martini, um, the spirit is often kept frozen in a freezer so you keep your gin in a freezer at really cold, like minus 20 degrees Celsius. Mm. It's so cold, it like burns your hand when you, when you pick it up. The, the reason for that is when you stir a drink that's that cold, you wind up having a very viscous, very thick mm. martini. And the mouthfeel is very impressive. Like in Japanese food, texture is so, so important. Mm. Cocktails sort of follow that same method. Interesting. So, um, so the... That slowness of melting yeah. the ice contributes more appreciation of the texture over time. It keeps changing. Yeah, absolutely. And so what happens, too, is that in the United States, we drink cocktails very, very, very fast. <laughs> um, in, in Japan, um, first of all, like when you're going to one of these bars in Ginza or in Shinjuku or Roppongi, like the, there's, a, there's a service fee. Mm. Like you get a little otoshi. Mm-hmm. With your with your service fee, so otoshi is like a little snack, a little mm-hmm. welcome snack. Um, but there's generally a service fee attached to that, and with cocktail bars, it can be pretty expensive. Mm. Maybe thirty dollars for one bar, right. and then each cocktail is also pretty expensive. Mm. So you're not drinking super fast, and you're definitely not there to to become inebriated. The mm. goal is not to drink to get drunk. The goal is to sit there with your cocktail quietly and mm. enjoy it slowly. Mm. So the melt point is crucially important. Um, a big thing that we do, like at uh, we did it at Bar Uchu, and we do it now at Bar Moga, is carve uh, ice into diamonds, mm. into a, a multifaceted diamond shape. And there's there's really two reasons for that. Like first is you you're enhancing the beauty of whatever you're putting in it, particularly whiskey, because it's reflecting of mm. all of all the facets of the diamond. But the shape of the diamond itself um, helps the drink to be chilled at the bottom but not overly diluted. And so you can drink it for a while. Um, I think uh, Ueno-san at, um, the tender. at uh, Bar High Five. Oh, that's the, yeah, Ueno-san. Ue, Ueno-san, 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 Ue-no-san. yeah. He, he, in Ginza. Again. In Ginza, also in Ginza. <laughs> he, um, he, he talks about this too, about how when you carve ice into a diamond, it'll as it melts, it becomes a mushroom shape. Mm. Because the bottom is not uh, is is uh, is diluting at a different rate than the top. Right, right. So again, it's an example of something being beautiful in Japan, but it has a real important function as well. Mm. Amazing! <laughs> <laughs> wow, I didn't know all the details. So okay, um, well, I can keep continuing with those details, but uh, I'll save for the next time. But now, so um, so you came back to New York and you are at uh, Bamuga, right? Yeah, yeah, I. I met you at the Uchu. I was Correct. so impressed about the, your styles and the service <laughs> omotenashi, and uh, I recruited you to the show actually. <laughs> Thank you. So, so then, um, so since you came back to New York, say, how did your style change? <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> definitely coming back, coming back to New York. Um, Karasu was my first, my, was my first uh, job back here in New York, um, and. 
the first day I stepped behind that bar, I felt like, oh my God, I'm back in Japan. I just felt like that because the bar was laid out like that. And, you know, it was clear and clean and simple. Um, and we were attempting to do things in the Japanese style. But I learned that there were several things that I could not do. Mm. Like I, I reverted back to my very quiet Japanese bartender way, like where I don't talk to the guests too much <laughs> and, and everything is like kegel. Like, mm. Yeah, it's additionally respectful way to speak yeah, in Japanese. Like, I'm sorry that I created a weight for you. Like, <laughs> and, and so I was being like, in, in Japan that works, but in the West, like, mm. we, we want the bartender to be a little bit more yeah. warm and fun and right. a party guy. I was so, like, are you okay? Like, <laughs> yeah. So I had, I, had to, I had to learn to stop doing that. Mm. Um, and then there's just like little things like, when you're at a Japanese cocktail bar, they don't give you water with your cocktail. Typically, mm. you have to ask for water. Right. Um, or like a chaser. Mm. Right. A chaser is always water. Right. 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 Um, so, yeah, just things like that. Like I at first I, I, I would I would kind of instruct people like, no, we have to do things exactly like they did it in Japan. Exactly like I was taught in Japan. But I've learned now that there's some things that translate very well and mm. some things that don't. <laughs> right. Interesting. So that uh, politeness doesn't work, and then that level is just a little bit too much. Right. So what works, in other words? <laughs> um. So what what works is um, definitely in terms of technique, being very mindful of your of your motions works. Um. I I try the the two words that I tell all of the bartenders I work with right now are quietude and elegance. Mm. So. Watch how you're moving, watch your posture, and how you carry yourself. Those things are going to translate. And then omotenashi, walking people to the door. Don't simply point at the bathroom. Like, take the extra two seconds. It really, mm. really, really makes a huge difference. Um, and the most important thing is just uh, a sense of composure uh, where instead of focusing only on what's inside the glass, mm. you focus on everything else. So the glassware itself is so important. Mm. Like the glassware must be beautiful and delicate. Your coaster has to be beautiful and elegant. Um, for so long, and myself included, Western bartenders defined themselves strictly by what was in the glass. Like, look at how good I am at combining these four or five ingredients. Um, Japanese approach is sort of like look we can all combine four or five ingredients into doing something great everything else is mm. what's really important right. mm. so it's a little culture package of all those yeah omotenashi <laughs> and uh care yeah and respect so okay and uh, so the karasu was in fort, fort green brooklyn and then you went to uchu in lower east side right and now you're at the bamoga which is in west village correct so what kind of cocktail do you <laughs> offer at the bamoga so at bamoga right now um it's it's really cool i'm uh sort of continuing the uh the theme of like moga is like modern gal Mm. It's uh you know in in in, in Japanese the, there's a lot of portmanteau like combining two words together uh -huh. right yeah we like that <laughs> yeah it's it's a it's fun wordplay right. so it's sort of the Japanese equivalent of um of flappers so mm. 1920s Japan like really like cool modern women um so we I tried to name all the drinks after people who like Japanese women who are very inspiring mm. uh, and the cocktails themselves often have shochu. Mm. So almost all of our cocktails have shochu. They'll have another spirit too. So it's what we call split basing. So you have rum and shochu, gin and shochu, whiskey mm. and shochu. Yeah. Um, and it's a sort of a twofold thing. Like first of all, I I I, I just I adore shochu. I think it's 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 the coolest spirit out there right now. If you think about it, there's no other spirit that has more sense of terroir. And more ways of expressing themselves mm. than shochu, because shochu can be made of one of like 30 some ingredients. It can only be distilled once. So if it's made the mugi shochu, which is barley, or emo shochu, which is sweet potato, you can taste the barley. Mm. You can taste the sweet potato. And like 
uh, barley shochu from Fukuoka tastes much, much different from an emo shochu from Kagoshima.、Mm. Like, its sense of place is very, very there.、Hey. You know, or Kokuto shochu or Awamori from Okinawa, like, they're just so different.、Mm. Um, You know, maybe rum is the only thing that's even close to being as expressive as, as shochu is. And shochu can be aged, unaged, so many different、mm-hmm. things. So, whenever possible, I try to do that. Like, I have a drink right now called、uh, Barley Two Ways, which uses Kintaro, which is a Baizen Mugi shochu. So, it's a roasted barley shochu、mm. from Yame, so just south of Fukuoka in Kyushu, so southern island of Japan. And has this really beautiful sort of like,、uh, it's Uh, it, it always reminds me of breakfast cereal. Okay. <laughs>、um, and so that's combined with, uh, with, uh, with a scotch.、Mm. So you've got barley from scotch and barley from Japan combined together,、mm. a little bit of a、uh, house、uh, sweet vermouth that we do,、uh, and Benedictine and some bitters. It's sort of like a Bobby Burns variation. Wow, what's、But、the name of the cocktail? I've told you that. It's called Barley Two Ways. Okay, I'll do that. Because it's literally right, right, right. two、oh. different ways of doing barley. Right.、Yeah. Okay. Yeah.、Mm. Okay, so.、Uh, so Um, where can we find your update, like all those things? <laughs>、uh, <laughs> I am terrible at social media,、um, but、uh, I, I do have an Instagram account. It's at、uh, Otsukarebiru. Otsukarebiru. <laughs> <laughs> so, Otsukaresama is like, thank you for your hard work.、Mm-hmm. And it was a,、uh, a tradition with my coworkers at the Mandarin、mm. that the first beer that we drank after work、mm. was the Otsukarebiru. Mm. Okay, so that spells like O T S U B. What's it? No, K A K A R A R E. B I I R U. Right. Okay, so it's not beer like Biru. B I R U, right? B I I R U. Okay, I have to follow you.、Um, and also, you, you said you're planning, you're writing a book, right? Oh,、uh, <laughs> it's a dream. Yeah.、Um, I, I, I am. I'm talking to a couple of friends of mine who have published books, and、uh, the goal is to sort of、um, encapsulate the, the year that I spent in Japan.、Uh, so, anecdotal fun things and stupid mistakes that I made here and there, and make it kind of funny, interspersed with、mm. the actual definition of what Japanese bar technique is all about、uh, technical information and information about sake. Wine and、uh, Japanese whiskeys.、Mm, you have to make it happen. I, I really can't wait to read it. Seriously. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so、uh, we'll come back when the book is published. Thank you. And before that, of course. There's so many things I, I couldn't finish today. so... We didn't even talk about Japanese whiskey. That's a whole、I、hour's、know. worth of conversation. Right. Well, seriously, that's really the topic. <laughs> yeah. You know, the、uh, Fukuyo san from Santori, he's a master chief blender, came、yeah. and talked about it. But Japanese whiskeys now. Really huge collective items. and It's the hottest category out there right now. And,、uh, you know, Derek Feldman, the owner of,、uh, of Bar Uchu,、um, was just very dedicated to letting me achieve the dream of, of collecting Japanese whiskeys. And I think、uh, we got up to about 76.、Uh, they just picked up a few more, too. They got.、Wow. They got、um, all of the,、uh, they got the Joker from、uh, the Hanyu, from the, the、mm. famous, one of the rarest whiskeys in the world.、Right. And at Bar Moga, we're up to 50 now. So、wow. that's also, between those two, those are two of the largest、uh, commercial collections. I didn't know the there's、Western、only、world. close to 80 Japanese whiskeys. I didn't know that. Oh, there's a lot out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's the next topic. We'll next come back. Topic. Right. <laughs> okay, so、uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. See you soon. Um, so,、uh, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or kikotema.com. And Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org、uh, and iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So,、um, please.、Uh, Subscribe to Japan Eats and our engineer today is David Tatasure. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.